Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. We live in a world where the news is at our fingertips, where we're one click or swipe away from the latest headlines. But how often do we stop swiping and scrolling and just listen? It's the difference between knowing what's in the headlines and understanding how it got there. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take, Al Jazeera's daily news podcast, where we bring you the context and the people behind the global stories that matter. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Roger Huang, first-time Shortcuts co-host, freelance writer, clubhouse influencer, which is now a thing that exists. Welcome. Thank you. Yeah, I know. It's, uh, it's a whole new, uh, whole new uh, world out there and a whole new set of job titles, I guess. <laughs> Today on the show, Roger, from Seth Rogen to Rohan Seth, from dog shampoo guy to cat face lawyer, we will discuss the hallucinogenic phantasmagoria that has become real life. Also... All of you woke campus lefties think you're so tolerant. So how come you don't tolerate bigotry? Didn't see that one coming, did you? Glad to have you on once again, Roger. It's going to be fun to, uh, to do this episode. This episode of Shortcuts is brought to everybody by Sean Hyam, Eric Weiss, Daryl Monroe, Maggie Neniger, Akshay Kanwar, Lisa Del Cole, Jason Stone, and Vladimir. Uh, hi, my name is Vladimir. I'm a government worker in Toronto. I support Canada Land because I think it's the best source for information and news that you are not getting anywhere else. And I really enjoy their informative interviews and that they take many approaches to an issue and really treat their audience like knowledgeable, decision-making people. So, Roger, we talk about the media here, and usually, like, we kind of interpret that pretty literally, like we talk about specific media stories. But these days, we are so detached from our physical selves that everything is mediated. Everything is through a screen. 
And I want to try to report on what that's like. Like if I look at my media experience writ large, it's not about like this news story or that news story. It's a little bit more of a, uh, of a, of a metaphysical journey. If you'll indulge me, can I try to describe this for a moment? Yeah, go for it. Okay. (laughs) Bear with me. Here's what I'm thinking about. We are more dissociated from our physical selves and the physical spaces that we share and the physical existence of one another than ever before. And, you know, that is a process that was already well underway before the pandemic, but the pandemic, you know, has just taken it to its natural extreme. It's like this great flattening, you know, so, so everything is just flattened onto your screen and you're just clicking between tabs, flipping between apps. So for me, that means like, I've got like a dumb Netflix comedy and then I click over and then it's not faces of comedy actors. It's the faces of my colleagues and we're working together on a zoom call. And then I click over and it's my mom sharing a video of my baby nephew being cute. And then it's like some horrifying viral news clip from TV that's been going around. And then like Facebook, somebody posts like a class photo from my like kindergarten class or something. It's like this mushing of the private and the public the present and the past, everything is just getting flattened together. Everything is just stripped of its texture, of its depth, of its mass, of, of, of smell, you know? Like, it's all just flattened pixels on, on the same screen. Everything's just faces and words. So that's my best attempt to describe what media is like for me. I think that that's what it's like for a lot of people these days. That's the fabric of reality under the pandemic. And I'm getting into this now because last week the fabric of my reality ripped open. There was like a glitch in my algorithm. So the faces from one tab jumped over to the other. And it went from like my <laughs> usual routine of like, I'm scrolling through news stories. And then in another window, I'm, I'm tweeting some insult to John Kay. And then I'm watching a Seth Rogen comedy on Netflix. And then everything just got mixed together. And now... Seth Rogen is insulting John Kay. And then John Kay's mom is telling Seth Rogen not to trust Jesse Brown. And then Seth Rogen is tweeting to me about it. And then John Kay is on Fox News complaining about it. The screen read, adult journalist's mom defends him from Seth Rogen. Are we in a world where you can't actually make a self-deprecating goofball joke without it going to racist hater in 40 seconds? You know, that honestly, that was the most disappointing part of this is that, um, like, I mean, all my. Yeah, I saw the tweet. Uh, I think Seth's quote, <laughs> Seth was like, what the fuck is happening? Yeah, he said, he said, ha ha, what the fuck? And you, you can't help but hear his laugh in your head. I don't know what I'm trying to say here. Like, then in another tab, Dan Levy's mom is on Twitter calling out the kids who bullied him in 1996 when he was a camper at what I think is the same Jewish sleepover camp that I went to where I was bullied in 1989. I was bullied in 89. I think I was a bully in 90. I hope I don't get those mixed up. But this past week has been like a waking fever dream, Roger. Like, you know how in a dream, like you might be like watching a news clip of Trump giving a speech, but then you're actually there. And then instead of Mike Pence, it's like your uncle Mo. And then you're upset about what Trump said, so you talk about it with Trump and Mo over cheeseburgers, but somehow that leads to revisiting some like childhood trauma from grade four French class. It's like life became that for me last week. And that's very personal and specific to me, and I don't mean to bore you, <laughs> but I can't help but wonder if this isn't something that like everybody is going through a version of. When I watch like a, a lawyer with a cat face or... 
I'm sure somebody out there is like, oh yeah, that kid who was like playing music at the U of T talent show in Scarborough in 2008 is now like doing the Super Bowl halftime show. Or maybe the rapper Lupe Fiasco is listening to you talk about China on Clubhouse. That's happened a lot, actually. Yeah, it's pretty trippy. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe tell people what Clubhouse is. I only found out myself recently. So Clubhouse itself is just basically this app, like you talked about, the fabric reality is melting. None of us are able to see each other physically. And so Clubhouse, I think, is actually like an app that's perfectly suited to the times. You just kind of drop in. And the best way I can describe it is it's kind of like a combination of a call-in radio show and a drop-in podcast. And so the idea is like you can step up. There are moderators, but they either bring you up on stage or stuff like that. And and it's social audio. Younger people might be more familiar with in terms of Discord. And actually, Chinese people are very familiar with in terms of YY and other apps. But I think this is something that was kind of a little bit new. And, And there were two things that were new about it. One was you know, the fact it was social audio, which is perfect. I think that's what people crave these days when it comes to their social experiences. No one really wants to get on Zoom calls and have to dress up anymore. Mm -hmm. I've had, you know, people who do rooms on there who are like taking baths. You know, people fall asleep in the rooms all the time. And (laughs) I think part of that is just, you know, it's it's, it's something for the times where, where people feel like they're so comfortable expressing themselves and they can just hop on this app. They don't have to worry about their appearance. They don't have to worry about shaving. They don't have to worry about any of this like any social mores, really. <laughs> and then the second part, which is really interesting, is that there's like a discoverability element. So you kind of get jumped in and you can kind of choose all these different rooms and different people start different rooms. And it just so happens that the way they built the network, I think, candidly speaking, when it started, it was a bunch of L.A. burners that were just meeting with San Francisco tech people. Right. But now, you know, it's kind of become this like really global thing, especially with the onboarding of, I think, Asia and also with Germany recently. What's kind of crazy about it is because of the network and because of who's on there, and then also they just want to talk about things, and I guess everyone's equally as lonely. You know, Lupe Fiasco, not to just name drop specific people, but like Lupe or like The Game, any of these people that I might have grown up listening to, they're human too. They're just as bored as I am in a pandemic. They're just home looking for something to do. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, the, the the platform allows them to start rooms on anything. I was invited. I'm just figuring out my way around it. But, like, you'll get, like, a notification, and it's just so strange. It's like, hey, Tiffany Haddish and George Strombolopoulos and, like, you know, a colleague of mine are in a room talking about entrepreneurship or something. She's like, oh, okay. You go there and there's like four or five people talking, but then there's a few hundred people or a few thousand people listening. On the one hand, it is this blurring of lines or the disappearance of lines so that, you know, famous people are just having these chats with just everybody else. On the other hand, it's totally unlike that flattening where everything's just a face or a word. Like it's it's hum- the human voice again, which is nice. That's what I think makes it very different from something like Twitter. Uh, and also, you know, the syn- the fact that it's synchronous right? Mm-hmm. Um, as opposed to asynchronous. I mean, you might get in a thread with someone and there's always context that's lost a little bit unless you're having a really intense discussion. But on Clubhouse, there's a lot of context that you can gain. But because it's ephemeral, there's also a little bit of FOMO. The thing is the rooms kind of disappear as soon as they're closed. Um, there's kind of two things I've come to realize with the app. Like One is that it frees up even some of the most busiest people in the world whenever they're free and everyone has some kind of free time, they can just jump on and say whatever. Right. And then the second thing, which is what you noticed is like, it gives people a platform to talk about things that they're not associated with. And, and you're actually kind of rewarded for starting rooms that are outside of the norm because yeah, like I kind of want to know what Lupe Lupe used to start tons of rooms about sumo wrestling and food. 
And I used to jump into them and just be like, hey, yeah, no, like, it's really cool. He has really well-developed thoughts on ramen. You get to see a full, the fuller side of, of people than you might in other, uh, in other social networks. I mean, that's if you choose to stay on there 24-7, which I think a lot of people do. <laughs> yeah. The incompatibility of audio with social media has been considered a problem. In, in podcasting for years, that it's not super shareable. It's very linear. You got to start at the beginning and go through to the end. It's hard to clip. You know, it requires this time commitment and this focus, but that's, what's wonderful about it. It just makes it hard for it to go viral. It's just a very different little window of things. And so, I mean, I was involved in a project trying to turn audio into more of a social experience. It didn't really go anywhere. And then clubhouse, I'm like, on the one hand, this feels like a throwback, like just like a, um, uh, like a, like a telephone call-in chat room, you know? And it's like, it's kind of like bad radio, like unproduced radio where nobody's like vetting the guests and editing the content. On the other hand, it had this, this amazing energy to it. Like it's just happening live. It became a news story this week because China ended up blocking Clubhouse. And I think that was a response to the kind of conversations, not, not about uh, food, but about politics. Mm. Were you following that? Yeah, pretty closely. I mean... I think the, the the thing that happened with the Chinese users is very specific, obviously, to how the government, as you alluded to, thinks about or mediates free speech or free discussion in a, in a mainland context. But I do have to say, for that magical week where essentially you could join without a VPN, actually, when people are talking about the ban in media and stuff like that, I mean, the same group of people who were showing up before on Clubhouse are probably still going to be able to show up with VPN, right? It just kind of stigmatizes the app a little bit in, in, in PRC. So if you if you want to be in the good graces of the government, you you might not show up. Actually, what I've been thinking about is it polarizes discussion because essentially people will only show up if they're super pro-CCP. So they think like they're covered. doesn't matter if they're being recorded or doesn't matter if they're using the BPM, which is technically illegal in, in PRC. Or people who are super anti, who are just super motivated, right? So it gets rid of the middle tier of people who are just kind of curious and seeing what this is about. Yeah, but that's the audience a lot. That is the audience. But I remember, you know, so many rooms where I was like, wow, um, you know, this, this is going to get Clubhouse back. I mean, we hosted one with Melissa Chan, who was the uh, first journalist uh, who was banned from, from PRC in 2014 since 18 years. Yeah. Our producer, Tiffany, was telling me about how she shared a stage with you and the artist Ai Weiwei and then Uyghur lawyers. And then I was reading about other conversations, just these conversations that don't happen, where Uyghurs would be talking on a Taiwanese hosted space to an audience of Han Chinese who have been kept in the dark about what it's like in these Uyghur camps. And everyone's just chatting in a way that would have been impossible. Like, like this is, for a brief moment, these conversations broke out that completely destroyed the bubbles that people were very carefully kept in previously, which might explain the crackdown and, and, and the blocking. Yeah. People were talking about all kinds of things. And it wasn't just the politics, I think, that was sensitive, right? You know, people were talking about drugs. They were talking about sex. They were talking about BDSM. And just like you mentioned, I think the most beautiful thing that it did not to be too romantic about it, but I think it was really that it burst everyone's bubbles about each other. It burst the bubble, I think, of how diaspora Taiwanese and Hong Kongers think of mainlanders as well. The easy trap to fall into is to think that mainlanders are this homogenous group that are just brainwashed and support the party. You know, hearing Uyghur activists, and we had, you know, some of them on stage with us who were talking about their brother being disappeared and had really specific stories, really specific names. Yeah. I think that 
that was something that shocked a lot of mainlanders. Mm-hmm. Obviously, they uh, they kind of went tried to justify it and things like that. And there were parts where I think that kind of verged on an outright genocide denial. But there were some people whose minds were changed. I think, and and no one in the room that we were in specifically that said this out loud. But in another room, apparently, a government supporter, after hearing similar stories, said that he had stopped in his car and cried. Yeah. Well, you know, you said not to get overly romantic about it, but I think it's okay to be romantic about that. Like the whole thing is, um, it feels really special like, and rare that something like that could just happen. And I don't know, just reading some of the coverage of it that like somebody saying, oh, I just wish that like that, that one week where all these conversations were happening, I wish I could just somehow listen to them all. But it's the fact that they were ephemeral and fleeting and not like this other constant surveillance space where you have to be careful what you say because everything becomes a part of your permanent record immediately. And you had to be there at that time. It's kind of wonderful, which is not to gloss over the fact that like there are concerns about Clubhouse, like with their privacy policy, they do have right. buffering so they could potentially hand over transcripts to authorities. Like what are the security concerns when people are using Clubhouse? This is stuff that I think like info security teams have talked to me about. And, and again, I have to stress this preliminary public kind of research. It's not a definitive report, but there's a few things that, that I think people should know, right? One is that Clubhouse is run on Agora, which is a uh, Cayman Islands headquartered, but Chinese incorporated company. They claim that they don't store user data. Um, and I was actually one of the first people to bring this up. When Clubhouse was welcoming Chinese users, I specifically told people to re- read into what I'm telling you all now, which is that the F1 filing on the SEC website for this company, Agora Incorporated, first of all, clearly states they're headquartered in Shanghai. And second, clearly states that they have to be in compliance with the Chinese government when it comes to national security and criminal investigations. And I think that, again, this is something where an info security professional who's looking through this will have much more context on. But my general impression is that there's kind of two security risks, right? Like people record things on the app and disseminate it for whatever reason. So you should treat it really as a public forum, right? And even though there are social or private rooms, I would not assume that people would not be able to get information on who you have conversations with and what the room titles are and kind of more of the metadata. The actual content of the conversations, I'm not as sure about. But again, like like I said, I think it's best to treat it as a public forum because Clubhouse doesn't prevent other people from recording audio and you can't actually tell whenever anyone is recording. Yeah. But I think if we just want to focus on the conversations it facilitated rather than the consequences it might entail, yeah, there were some very unique moments. And and that's kind of the, the double-edged sword of Clubhouse is the ephemeral nature allows these rooms to, to happen. But then when you're trying to sit down and, and talk about it on the record, this is probably why they're so successful at growing. You, you can't really convey it 100%. Roger, it's your first time here. One thing we like to do for our listeners is let them know about stuff that um, maybe otherwise would have been overlooked. It's called Duly Noted. What do you have to duly note? Régent Tremblay, you know, recently wrote basically uh, in my slightly accented French, Donc tout va bien parce que pourvu qu'on gagne le CH, pourrait faire jouer... Um, as you can tell, I grew up in Quebec, although the angle. You'll have to, you'll have to translate. For <laughs> so as long as we're still winning, which the Habs are, think whoever's ordaining that the Canadians can play 20 Chinese and that will be perfect. What? Yeah. And, and, you know, it's funny because I read and tell people where did Tremblay write that? 
Uh, Le Journal de Montréal. You know, it, it's interesting to me. I mean, Réjean, I have a little bit of context. I grew up in, well, I guess I'm a Chinese person who grew up in Quebec, right? Or Canadian, Chinese Canadian who grew up in Quebec. And, um, you know, I think the thing that's interesting about that is in the article, and I think the article he cited, right, there is this idea that the Habs could have more French. Uh, I think specifically lamented the fact that Shea Weber and like Carey Price don't speak French. I, I'm just trying to get the bigotry, understand what his bigoted joke was. Like, as long as they're winning, I don't care if they're all Chinese. Is that his joke? Basically, he was saying that like eventually, you know, the Habs are going to be a team of like all these. Well, actually, I think they edited it, which is funny because before he had it on Twitter or something, it was like 20 random Chinese names will be on the team. Yeah. I think the point he was trying to make was that the Canadians don't have players who are willing to embrace Quebec culture and speak French to fans, which, you know, honestly, you can go back and forth on. But like, I think it kind of makes sense that you would want that. I mean, I, I grew up in, in Quebec and, and things like that. But where I think it really and again, this is like where it really shoots itself in the foot is the idea that like just because someone's ethnically Chinese, that they wouldn't be able to do that. It didn't occur to him that, that you could have Chinese players and they and they could be Quebecers as well. Yeah. And I think I can embrace parts of Quebec culture. I can speak French, je parle français, je préfère tout ça. Like I can do all of this, but I can't, you know, magically become pure laine, as they would call it in Quebec. And so, mm -hmm. so I think that's where it misses the mark. Because ironically, I think of Quebec culture, I think embrace that. I think there would be many more people who would, who would embrace French, who would embrace Quebec culture. I, I just wish that people like him would, would accept that just because people might have a different skin color or skin tone doesn't mean they can't fully participate in a society or in a sports team. I mean, on the other hand, fuck him. Yeah, that's, I mean, <laughs> fair enough. I mean, I'm a little long-winded, but if you want to sum up that way, that's fine too. <laughs> duly noted. Roger, I want to duly note, um, this uh, story out of Barrie. Here's what seems to have happened. 20-year-old kid named Skylar Kent skateboards, uh, runs a red light. Cop pulls him over, gives him a ticket, and that should have been it. But as the cop is walking away, Skylar Kent makes the mistake of uh, showing some attitude, gets lippy, and, uh, and, and, and gives the cop the finger, and then, and then rolls off on a skateboard. And according to eyewitnesses, the cop, enraged, rushes a squad car in front of Skylar Kent, slams on the brakes so that Kent, I think, goes over the uh, over the back of the car. And then, this is when all the videos that I've seen start, the cop just brutalizes him and is, is, is holding this, like, kind of scrawny kid in this kind of crazy hold and then demanding that he put his hands uh, in a place where he can't put his hands because the cop's full body pressure is on the kid. The kid is screaming. Yeah, I saw this. It was pretty messed up. Very disturbing. Onlookers are saying, leave him alone, leave him alone. And he's like, you know, back off where you're going into. In one of the videos, you can see he's like trying to tase the kid. He threatens to light him up. And, you know, in, the, in that way that these brutalizations happen, he yells at him, stop resisting, stop resisting. It's clear that the kid can't even move, so he's not resisting. But, of course, the cop is, uh, in my opinion, getting ready his, uh, like, even before he smacks the kid, he's getting ready his, his justification for smacking the kid. Oh, he was resisting arrest, and you could hear me saying to him, stop resisting. It's very clear the kid's not resisting. Tries to tase him, like, like drops the taser or something. Eventually, another cop comes, and, like, only when another cop comes... 
does this officer who's been identified online by, by Dean Blundell, the podcast radio host, as uh, actually named Officer Jason Stamp. So Officer Stamp, only when he's got help from another cop, he smacks the kid on the back of the head and it just sends the kid's head into the concrete. Like it's mm-hmm. just, a, it's gross. Um, I'm duly noting this, I mean, both because I think police brutality should be should be noted to the extent that this is a limited story. Let's give it some attention. And Barry police say that uh, the officer in question has been reassigned and is under investigation. But of particular interest to me is before the second cop arrives, somebody else comes to help Officer Stamp. A man who has a sweater that has the CBC logo on the back. Hmm. And the guy looks like a civilian. And he's like helping to hold down Skylar Kent, except there's no help needed. Like the kid's leg is like, he could be kicking this one leg, but he's not. And this guy with the CBC sweater just sort of puts his hand to hold down the kid's foot. And at some point he kind of gives up doing that because the kid's not resisting at all. And I was just curious afterwards, like, who is this guy with the CBC? And anybody could have a CBC sweater, but I asked the CBC and they confirmed to me that that is a CBC cameraman yeah. who was on shift He was working for the CBC at the time that this happened. He didn't have his camera out documenting this police brutality like three other people did. Instead, he's an auxiliary member of the OPP. I didn't know that that existed. And he was like, let me help you, officer, and and, and subdue this ruffian. And needlessly is there holding a kid down kind of before and after the kid is brutalized. What the hell? Yeah, I made for a really weird fucked up image if you work in the media you got to be careful about documenting history not entering it i always think Mm -hmm. and i think this was just a really bad example of that kind of like overwhelming need to be part of the scene as opposed to like observing it i I don't know to what extent camera operators have different standards than maybe i'm more familiar with like journalists or the written form I mean, the camera operator is a journalist. The camera operator is the eye. They're trying, like, I, I don't know. I, anyhow, I don't mean to take, you know, CBC actually reported this before we did. It was like a, a local story and buried in the story was mentioned that one, one of their own people was like involved in this. So CBC is not disclosing their identity. I'm sure there's union issues, but I, I, I would hope that they would have a big problem with this. Duly noted. This episode is brought to you by AG1. Listen, taking care of your health is not always easy, but it should at least be simple. That is why for months now, I start every day by drinking AG1. I take a scoop of this green powder, I mix it in a canister with water, shake it up, and I drink it. I get hydrated and I get energized and focused and ready to take on the day knowing that I have vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. These are things that science tells us we need. They are also things that I don't necessarily get every day outside of my AG1. Listen, if there's one product that I'm going to recommend that will help you elevate your health, it's AG1. And that is why I have been partnered up with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try it now and you'll get a free welcome kit that includes a shaker bottle, canister, a metal scoop, along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. That is drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. Last thing I want to talk with you about today, these stories pop up every now and then, you know, does identity politics apply to Catholics? 
Huh? What's good for the goose is good for the gander. If you're going to play that game, what about what about people with uh, with with those types of belief systems? What about those oppressed minorities? Uh, okay, so here's the story. Ryerson student journalist claims he was fired from campus newspaper over his Catholic views. Jonathan Bradley, um, student journalist with the Eye Opener newspaper out of Ryerson, and the way the paper works is like um, its mandatory fees are collected from every student. You know, six bucks from each student goes to this newspaper. And he was writing for them, and he was also writing for like the Post Millennial and other places. At first, I was kind of inclined to feel sympathetic to his case here uh, when I re- read uh, an account of this written by Barbara Kay. I should have known better, Roger. Um, but <laughs> if you read the Barbara Kay version, Jonathan Bradley sounds like he was really hard done by because, um, yes, he has a strict interpretation of the Roman Catholic religion and believes that homosexuality is a sin, but that's his personal belief and he can have them. And what happened to him, according to Barbara Kay, is that he divulged that in a direct message, a private message with someone, that those were his religious beliefs about homosexuality and, and about trans people, um, that it was a sin, et cetera, et cetera. And that that person violated his privacy, screenshot that conversation, posted it online. And that is how his editors of the newspaper came to suspect him and ultimately threw him out of the paper. Now, it may be true that that private uh, conversation was screenshot and published, but it's also true that Jonathan Bradley was out there on Twitter saying that transvestitism, that's how he put it, and homosexuality is a sin. So these were not his private beliefs. I don't think it's cool that his privacy in that conversation was violated, but he, this guy has been public about that. And now he is launching a case for himself with the Human Rights Tribunal of Ontario because the paper said, look, you are publicly on the record feeling that um, it's a sin to be homosexual and you can't write for us. You can't work with colleagues here. People are not going to feel okay about having you around them because that's abhorrent uh, and against our own ideas about inclusion, whether or not you're writing about these issues. So he's become a poster boy for, you know, do these radical left identitarian things apply? uh, Whatever happened to tolerance of religious beliefs? What do you think about this? Because, you know, some of the original civil liberties protections were about tolerating people of different religious beliefs. And that's the case that he's going to the Human Rights Tribunal with. Yeah, I think like private conversations being leaked, I am a huge not fan of. That said, though, if he was public on a bunch of those views and then thought that he would work for a publication that had very opposite views, I don't think that his views on LGBTQ are going to preclude him from employment or anything else by like, let's say the National Post or Quillette or post-millennial or rebel media. So that's kind of my my whole messy take on that. I mean, it seems pretty simple to me. Like, it feels like they're twisting something into something else. The idea is, you know, you can't fire someone from their job just because you find out that they are an, an adherent to a, a religious system that you don't agree with. But if you work for a newspaper and you're out there in public saying, and by the way, he's relying on his Catholic faith. The Pope no longer says that being homosexual is a sin. He still says that doing homosexual things is a sin. But this guy is more homophobic than the Pope. So this isn't about his belief. It's about like if you are out there saying, hey, 
you know, I think that this race of people is is inferior or this group of people are an abomination and, and they're sinful by their very nature. Yeah, like I'm running an editorial operation. You have free speech. Go say that everywhere you want. But you're not saying it in my paper. Like you're not saying it on my network. Pretty, pretty straightforward. Yeah, that's, that's what I was saying, too, in terms of, you know, in terms of the employment function. But what I don't have clarity over is whether this is a legal matter. Well, he's taking it to the Human Rights Tribunal. So the idea is that, you know, that, that our human rights, uh, you can't lose your job because of your religious creed. And, and, and that's why he lost his job. It'll be an interesting case to see how it pans out. But the nature, I mean, they're loosely defining employment here. I think he was an unpaid contributor to a student newspaper right. where he would get like free beer and chicken wings for doing it. This is a show trial kind of a thing to see if uh, if these laws, uh, you know, will protect everybody. I think it's a bit of a disingenuous case, you know, but we'll, we'll, we'll see, you know, the people who are relying on the human rights tribunal are kind of looking at this are people who I think um, in other contexts have argued against the existence of the human rights tribunal. All right. That's uh, Canada land shortcuts for this week, everybody. I can be emailed at jesse at canadaland.com. When you send me emails, I read them. We are on Twitter at Canada land. Roger Huang, where can people find you? If you want to find me, uh, Twitter at RogerH1991. Our website is CanadaLand.com, where you can find this week's episode of Commons, which is a fascinating look at the Indigenous police force in northern Ontario. This episode is produced by Tiffany Lamb with additional production by Kevin Sexton. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt. And our theme music is by SoCalled. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do and you want to receive ad-free versions of all of our podcasts and other stuff too, hit the link in the show notes or go to canadaland.com join. We rely on your support. 